So this evening, we've got our four points on the screen. <laughs> there you go. But I want to give you a, a thought experiment uh, this evening. I want you to imagine for a second if we did away with preaching at church, if we stopped preaching altogether, uh, nothing from the Bible, uh, nothing from the front uh, taught, what effect would that have? Now I imagine that most people would be up in arms, wouldn't they? You'd think this is terrible. Or what about singing at church? We sort of had it in lockdown, but we still had songs we were singing along to at home. But imagine no music whatsoever, no piano, no guitar, no words, no nothing. I imagine people would get very upset. What about no prayer? I'm sure that there would be questions asked, wouldn't there? What about communion? Bread and wine, the Lord's Supper. Well, actually, most Sundays we don't have communion. Most of our Sunday meetings, we don't. We have it once a month on a Sunday morning and once a month on a Sunday evening. That's our pattern. But if we stopped it altogether, I wonder how long it would take us to notice. And it's a real question. Some denominations don't do communion in any form. The Salvation Army don't do it at all. They don't have uh, bread and wine. During lockdown, we weren't able to. And here's my question. If we missed out the Lord's Supper, did we miss out on anything? Did we miss out on that? What did we miss out on during lockdown when we couldn't take it? And if we didn't miss out on anything, if we didn't lack anything, then why do we do it? What do we gain from taking the Lord's Supper? Well, despite having the Lord's Supper twice a month, it's not something that we focused on. Uh, really, we talk about you know taking the Lord's Supper. We don't really focus often on what's going on. It's not something that a lot of churches teach on. To be fair, it's not given a huge amount of space in the Bible. There's the Last Supper in the Gospels, a few allusions in Acts and Jude, and then the passage in One Corinthians that we have read before us. And in One Corinthians, I don't know if you noticed, they're actually being rebuked. They're doing it badly. Uh, I don't think I, I think we often miss that the bit before the bit we normally read for communion. He's actually telling them off. So it's quite hard to tell exactly what a normal one looked like, because actually he's telling them the way that they did it was really bad. And there's lots of confusion in the church at large and historically too. What actually happens when we take the Lord's Supper? So this evening, uh, this was a sort of last minute thing because it was supposed to be at Kyle, but this evening... I'm going to give us four views that exist today over what we're doing. I don't do this often, but one of the views that we'll look at will be the Roman Catholic view, partly so that we can see the way that the other ones react against it. I would say of the four views I'm going to give us this evening, two of them are plain wrong, and the other two are flip-flopped uh, over the years between the two. And I'd imagine that we find people uh, of different opinion around ourselves. One caveat before we start, though. All these views are simplifications, okay? I'm not going to be able to give you everything about them or every nuance. So if you find something intriguing, go away and find out uh, a bit more. So firstly, the, the one that the other views are generally set against, the Roman Catholic uh, view of bread and wine. Roman Catholics don't generally talk about communion or the Lord's Supper. For them, they talk about the Mass. And the whole event wasn't allowed in English until 1964. Check that out this week. So before then, it had to be done in Latin. Uh, so you come in, they would say some words in Latin, and off you go. Uh, even for what, hundreds of years ago, a few people have spoken 
uh, Latin, but it's from uh, words in Latin that it gets its name Mass. Because the last word in the ceremony is Missa, or Mass. Uh, it actually means to send or to leave, like Vamos uh, in Spanish. One theory as to why it's called Mass, no one's entirely sure, is that people didn't understand what was being said, and so just sort of picked up on the last word. You know, Mass, off you go. Didn't realise what was being said. The Roman Catholic view, though, is that what's happening with the bread and wine uh, in this event is that the, they actually become the body of Christ after the blessing of the priest. It may look like bread, it may taste like bread, but it is no longer bread. In its substance, it really has become the body of Christ with just a sort of outer appearance of bread. They borrowed ideas from Aristotle to explain that. The accidents, the features remain the same, but the substance, the underlying stuff, if you like, changes. And only the priests can bring about this change, and only with the right words. When he says, I'll see if I get this right, hoc est enim corpus meum, that is, this is my body, there's a bell that's rung, and the bread and the wine mystically change literally into the body and blood of Christ. It sounds so much like a magic trick that it's believed the phrase hocus pocus uh, is derived from the Latin phrase for this is my body that we read before. <coughs> the long word for this idea is transubstantiation, uh, change in substance. And it has a few shocking implications that go with it. One, if the bread really is Christ's body, then it's worthy of worship. So, in a Catholic church, the bread is held up high, and is adored by the congregation, is worshipped by the congregation. It's called the adoration of the host, if you want to Google it afterwards. Number two, when the bread is broken, Christ's body is broken again. So it's another sacrifice that is repeated over and over. That's partly why Roman Catholic churches have altars and priests and it's set up like a temple. Because they believe a sacrifice is taking place. Christ is being crucified again. But what does the Bible say? Well, in Hebrews 9, at 24 onwards, it says this. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest offers the holy places every year, with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ is sacrificed once. That one sacrifice was enough. Of course, this whole thing was not true in the early days of the church, or, or even later on. Morning Star of the Reformation and Yorkshireman, John Wycliffe, was a proper Yorkshireman, uh, wrote that this doctrine was a new thing in his day and not accepted by the church before. He wrote in around 1380, bear that in mind, way before Luther and the Reformation, 1380, he wrote this, the consecrated host we priests make and bless is not the body of the Lord, but an effectual sign of it. It is not to be understood that the body of Christ comes down from heaven to the host consecrated in every church. He challenged vehemently the idea that priests can make God uh, out of bread. That was one of the things that got him in a lot of trouble. But that's just to let you know that the church at large didn't always believe this. It's not that that's what it believed. The Protestants changed it at the Reformation. That was quite a new idea by the time we got there. 
So what do Roman Catholics believe they get out of participating in the Mass? Well, pretty much everything and anything. I was reading their catechism this week to check that I've got this right, and there's a long section on what they believe they're getting by taking the bread and wine. It lists renewed life, cleansing from sin, strength to live the Christian life, deepening of their union with Christ, committing them to the poor, and uniting them with other Catholics around the world. There are also other things that have happened over the years. So consecrated bread was taken and used as a sort of lucky charm uh, by people in the churches. That's why all the consecrated bread and wine must be consumed uh, on the site so people couldn't take it away. If you put all that into the Lord's Supper, it's no wonder why that's so central to Catholicism. And since only a priest can do that, the priesthood goes along with it. So what about, uh, just let me give you a test case we're going to look at with all the the different ones, a test case. What happens when a non-Christian eats the bread? Well, if the priest said the right words, then they literally eat the body of Christ. That's what happens with the Catholic view. The next view is a bit newer, um, but I would argue equally wrong. So this is about 500 years ago, Martin Luther. Uh, What's his view? Martin Luther got a lot of stuff right, setting off the Protestant Reformation, but he also got a lot of stuff wrong. In some places he was flexible, but in matters of the Lord's Supper he was not. This was actually the doctrine that stopped the early reformers working together. So of all the things they could disagree on, this was actually what they disagreed on. And it was Luther who was not up for compromising. Luther rejected the Catholic views, transubstantiation, and gave his own view. That the bread and wine do not become the body of Christ, but Christ really is present in, with, and under the bread. So it's sometimes called the doctrine of real presence, or consubstantiation. Christ with the substance. So Christ is present in the bread and the wine, but doesn't become the bread and the wine. So that you really do eat and drink Christ still. And Luther was adamant about this. When Jesus said, this is my body, Luther thinks of that not as figurative, but as literal. And that was his clincher text. If Jesus said it, he meant it. And in this, he was sort of closer to the Catholic view than the other reformers. Today, only really Lutherans hold this position. So what do Lutherans believe that they get out of taking the Lord's Supper? Well, let me quote Luther's catechism. What is the benefit of such eating and drinking? This is shown in these words, given and shed for you, for the remissions of sin. Namely, that in the sacrament, forgiveness of sins, life and salvation are given us through these words. For there is forgiveness of sins, there is, where there is forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. How can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? It is not the eating and drinking, indeed, that does give them, but the words which stand here namely given and shed for you, the remission of sins. So what he's saying there is not quite the same as the Catholic view. He's saying that the words that we speak at communion are important. And it's in those that we find the forgiveness of sin. What about our test case? What happens when a non-Christian eats the bread? Well, they eat the body of Christ in and with the bread. But if they don't believe the words that are spoken then they get no benefit from that. Okay, next view. This is Zwingli, who was a reformer, same time as Luther, uh, was in Zurich. He's the guy that we talked about at the Reformation evening, who set up his Reformation by eating sausages uh, during Lent in public. So that's the guy we're talking about. 
Um, Zwingli held that the Lord's Supper was simply a meal of remembrance. No change of substance, no real presence. The bread is just bread, the wine is just wine, and they act as a reminder to Christians of what happened. Nothing mystical or spiritual happens. You get no spiritual benefit from partaking. Christ is offered to us, but only figuratively. So it doesn't really matter who's breaking the bread or what words they say. What matters is that during it, you remember Christ and his death on the cross. If Luther's text was, this is my body, then Zwingli's text was, do this in remembrance of me. And for this reason, the view is often called memorialism. Luther and Zwingli uh, tried to get a sort of agreement between them. They met in October 1529 to see if they could work together and form just one Protestant church in response to the Catholics. They agreed on basically everything, even things that we fall out about today. They were on the same side on the free will determinism debate. They were on the same side on infant baptism. They were on the same side on original sin, but they couldn't agree on the Lord's Supper. It got so heated that allegedly, allegedly, you don't have definite proof for this, Luther got to the meeting room early one day and wrote something in chalk on the table and then covered it up with a tablecloth. When the debate got particularly heated towards the end, Luther pulled off the tablecloth, revealing, this is my body, written in chalk on the table and stormed out. Imagine Luther at a members' meeting. The two never came to a real agreement, which is partly why we do have different uh, churches. They did, though, publish something called the Marburg Articles, which had 14 articles of agreement, and then that 15th just calling for mutual acceptance on the issue of the Lord's Supper. But what, in Zwingli's view, do we get from taking the Lord's Supper? Well, we gain a remembrance of Christ. Christ is present in our mind, but not so much in the meal. He's present in the congregation as we meet, as we're hearing this morning, but not present in the bread and wine. So what happens in our test case? What happens when a non-Christian eats the bread and the wine? Well, nothing. They don't eat Christ's body, but then again, neither do believers. All that's happening is that we're remembering, and it's a reminder of what went on 2,000 years ago on the cross. So that's the third one. Okay, last year. John, this is John Calvin, not my Calvin. Okay? John Calvin's view. When John Calvin appeared on the scene, Luther and Zwingli had already had their fallout some years before. Uh, Calvin was writing about 20 years later, he was, you know, a bit later than uh, Luther and Zwingli. And he was writing in the Swiss context in Geneva. So folk around him were generally with Zwingli's view. That's, that's the sort of context he was in. But he'd also been north in Strasbourg for a while, where he generally people held a more Lutheran position. The result, humanly speaking, is that Calvin, I think, got to see the best of both practices and both positions. His position was that believers do feed on Christ in the Lord's Supper, but they do so by faith. So the bread does not change substance, but Christ is present by faith in the eating of the bread. So here's a classic statement of this view. I'll see if anyone knows where it's from afterwards. The body of Christ is taken, sorry, is given, taken, and eaten in the supper, only after a heavenly and spiritual manner. And the means whereby the body of Christ is received and eaten in the supper is faith. 
The sacrament of the Lord's Supper was not by, uh, not by Christ's ordinance, reserved, carried about, lifted up, or worshipped. Anyone know where that's from? Institutes? Not the Institutes, no. That's Article 28 of the 39 Articles of the Church of England, yeah. believe it or not. So that should be the official position of the Church of England. It also says this in that same article. Transubstantiation, or the change of substance of the bread and wine in the supper of the Lord, cannot be proved by Holy Scripture, but is repugnant to the plain words of the Bible and overthrows the nature of the sacrament and has given occasion to many superstitions. There you go, that's the Church of England's view. Um, but what do we gain from the Lord's Supper, according to this view? Well, now I will give you some uh, Calvinistic statement, Heidelberg Catechism. Question. What does the Lord's Supper signify and seal to you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and all its gifts? It says in this, here we go. In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this bread broken and to drink of the cup in remembrance of him. With this command, he gave these promises. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely was his body offered for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of the minister and take with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord, as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely does he himself nourish and refresh my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood. So what it's saying there is that we feed spiritually on Christ who nourishes us, and we gain assurance of our faith. That's one of the reasons why I encourage us to personalise the eating and drinking. We're preaching to ourselves that this has happened for us, for me. His body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me, I believe, and so I eat. It does us spiritual good in that sense to take part. So what about our test case? What happens when a non-believer eats the bread or drinks the wine? Well, they do not eat the body of Christ, because they have no faith, so no faith, no body. But what happens when a believer eats the bread? Well, they feed on Christ by faith. So there are our four views. I think over the last few years, I'm tending more and more to the last one, though, like I said, flip-flopped between Zwingli uh, and Calvin. But it seems to me that the final view gives more sense to the place it's given in the life of the church without filling the meal with superstition and vain mysticism, but also without making it that it's nothing uh, that we're doing. So please bear that in mind as we look at that later. If you've got any questions, please feel free to, to drag me afterwards and, and chat about those things. But uh, why don't I pray for our other meal now uh, that we're going to enjoy together, a bit of soup and bread. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we'll thank you for the gift of the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you. Um, that we can enjoy it together, Father, whatever our position we hold on it, Father, thank you that we can remember together and celebrate together the Lord's death on the cross for us. Thank you for that great gift, and thank you for this good food now and those who prepared it, and pray that you bless it to our bodies in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.